Stories, fables, ghostly tales. Welcome, listeners, to your Stone in the Stream chapter, an audiobook adventure written by Fee Stringer, a listener of mine. Listeners, today we continue Zoe's adventure into the world of darkness. Her struggle to work within her reality that is slowly shifting and the isolation that she faces in that she alone can see its effects. The trust of Dr. Roach will be tested, and new artifacts, along with their ancient languages, will be within Zoe's grasp to interpret. But what does it all mean? Listeners, turn the lights off, the sound up, and join me for the continuation of Stone in the Stream. Her mind at last started to detect what was wrong visually as well. The geometry of the room was off, shifting somehow. She tried to focus on what was happening, but the effect of whatever was happening was upsetting her balance. It was the same room, yes, but it was as if its dimensions were being distorted by a mirror that makes things appear slightly different from how they are in reality. Except in this case, the mirror was affecting the reality itself instead of just the visual aspects. The shadows were sliding over surfaces in ways that were denying common spatial rules, and the angles in the corners of the rooms were slowly twisting into impossible aspects of depth and architecture. All of this was occurring in the sea of silence that Zoe found herself submerged in making it all the more surreal and frustrating. Jason continued to sleep through the happenings in the room, slightly less affected by what was happening spatially. His hand drifted off the arm of the chair as the chair was turning in on itself and the shadows of the room started to envelop it. Zoe had stopped yelling his name and began to make her way across the room, kicking the fallen chair out of the way in one last hope of sonic satisfaction. She felt the sensation of falling. Then, the sensation changed, becoming heavier than before, but solidly grounded again. Things went black for just a moment, but became clear before panic struck. One of the drapes had drifted in front of her, making it appear that the light had gone out, but it quickly receded. She saw Jason's form being more distorted by the room's spell than before, His chest looked like it was collapsing. Though he slept soundly, and one of the shadows had started sliding towards his mouth. Zoe would not stand for that. She screamed into the silence, not to be heard, but to focus her adrenaline into something useful. Jason's office was not terribly big. Its dimensions had never been much of a thought until now. Jason was probably a mere seven feet from Zoe in normal circumstances, but it may as well have been across a rushing river under these conditions. Zoe leapt into the air towards Jason's desk in a clumsy and desperate action, but she was not going to let whatever was happening cause any harm. The action itself may have only taken moments, but the experience of moving from one end of the office to the other seemed to take a lot more time subjectively. Zoe's feet left the floor, and for a moment, the floor rose up to greet them before it appeared to dissipate 
into another incalculable depth below her. For a moment it felt as if she leapt miles into the air, and the whole of the office was nothing but a speck below. Zoe blinked and was back on course. The slow-motion nature of things made her head hurt. Zoe then saw the world flicker out for a moment into what reminded her of a photo negative of the office, but there were other things in this negative space with her. In the glimpse, she saw the dreamlike shadow of a man in a World War II uniform, moving slowly, his face in terror. Behind him was another man in a form of armour she had never seen before. It looked like something between Roman and samurai in design. To her left, she saw something the approximate shape of a mushroom, but as tall as a fire hydrant, with tentacles that were moving slightly, and what she could only describe as an eye staring up towards. Zoe thought she could see the silhouette of Patrick. The last thing she saw was also eerily familiar. It was one of the creatures from her dream in the park, its ocular orb held up, as if shielding itself from an unseen bright light. The image was gone so quickly that she was scarcely aware that it had even happened, save for the image in her head that had imprinted in her mind's eye like a snapshot. Zoe's knee was striking the desk, everything still without sound. The content of the desk began spilling as it toppled over, the shadow almost to Jason's mouth as she collapsed on the floor next to him, her hand touching his knee that looked like it was rippling underwater. She yelled the word, Stop! She was surprised when she yelled it, as the end of the word she heard started abruptly coming out in a compelling, Up! 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 The shock of making the sound made Zoe wince almost as much as she did when she first impacted the floor. When she managed to blink, she saw that the distorted reality of the office had returned to normal, and Jason was looking around the room, alarmed at the sound she had made. And then, at the overturned desk and mess that had been left, he looked down on the floor to see Zoe sprawled out on her back, holding onto his leg. Zoe, how did... He stopped mid-sentence upon seeing that in her other hand was the black stone. Zoe was just seeing the stone in her hand as well. She came to realize that she must have grabbed it as she was falling over the desk, and that the event had ended upon her laying her hand upon it. Jason! Was all she could utter. Jason reached down to help her up. What happened, Zoe? I can't. He was interrupted again this time by Zoe Bauman's throwing her arms around him and kissing him with certainty on the lips. He did not resist her at all. Chapter 20. One Answer and a Thousand Questions Jason was dead asleep in his bed, still sweaty from the passion that had swept over both Zoe and him hours ago, leaving them both tired and drained of physical energy. Zoe lay next to him, equally exhausted. They had left the office together, and Zoe had explained what she had observed. That something, perhaps the entity or entities that she had seen in her visions, had tried to attack, although neither of them had been sure that attack was the right word. For what had happened was beyond an easy way of describing. 
Suffice it to say that something had intruded and was stopped by Zoe's contact with the black stone. Of course, Jason had no recollection of what had happened, as all of the events took mere minutes and all of it happened while he had slept. But at this point, he was hardly in a position to argue the point. So many questions circulated between them. What was the entity trying to do? Finish what it had started earlier, when it ate part of their past and present? And the shadowed people and creatures she had seen briefly? What was their presence in this? When they reached his home, Zoe apologized for losing her cool and kissing Jason without warning, explaining that she had been so emotional at the thought of losing him again, to which she had responded by pressing his body to hers and kissing her with an intensity that both of them had, up until now, been unfamiliar with. Hours later, their lovemaking had led to the deeply sleeping Jason and the very worn-out Zoe in his bed. One side effect of the whole event had become perfectly clear in its aftermath. Both Zoe and Jason realized that they had a need for each other that went deeper than they had dared guess. Despite the emotion and the passion they had explored in each other, both Zoe and Jason had remembered to bring the stone, and it sat on his bedstand to Zoe's right. She rolled over and stared at it, wondering if she would ever find out its meaning or purpose. She wanted to reach out and touch it, but was afraid it might have some other dangerous effect that had yet to be discovered. Denying her nervousness, she allowed her fingers to touch its smooth surface. What are we doing? She whispered to the empty, darkened air. Zoe had slept a dreamless and comforting sleep, and she awoke to the sound of coffee being set down in a mug next to the stone. Hi, said Jason, trying to contain his smile. Morning, Zoe said with a grin, perfectly comfortable with her nakedness in front of him now. I think I might have found a common thread in some of these writings, Jason said. It had been about a week since the incident in the library, and Zoe had made a point of carrying the stone on her person everywhere she went. She held her hand on it in the pocket of her hoodie as Jason began. I could not see it at first because of the differences in verb usage, but I think all of them ask about. He paused, trying to find the right words in English. Being consumed. Or erased, somehow. Both. She scooted close to him, putting her arm on his shoulder. His body relaxed at her touch. It says that, and that would make sense given what we have seen. What else does it say? She scooted close to him, putting her arm on his shoulder. His body relaxed at her touch. It says that, and that would make sense given what we have seen. What else does it say? At first I thought it was something else, something to do and a season ending, but now I can see that it is pretty consistent with their lives, or existence, being consumed. He looked up at her from over the lenses of his glasses. Kind of consistent with what you were saying, isn't it? Zoe nodded, slowly looking at Jason's notes. I wonder what it is they want me to do, she said, looking at the stone. They are so vague. Whatever they are. Jason stood up and walked to the window. It was so grey outside the world resembled a black and white photo. 
Zoe followed his gaze to the silhouettes of the buildings in the west, almost black against the overcast sky. Communication is a lot harder than most of us realize, I think. It is hard enough for linguists and archaeologists to understand what people from different cultures and eras were trying to say to one another. He watched a car drive by and continued, let alone try to communicate across species. He turned from the window and walked over to put his hand on her shoulder. I think this is the barrier they are trying to overcome. They are not trying to be vague, but they just don't know how to talk to you. Zoe continued to stare out the window. That, and I get the impression that whatever it is trying to contact me is already gone. Tears were forming in her eyes, and she could not say why, so she continued. I think the only thing that is trying to talk to me now is just an echo, or a message in a bottle, or something like that. They lay next to each other exhausted once again. Jason and Zoe both knew that the act of sex was being used mutually as a way to distract them from the nervousness and dread that they had been uncovering in the tomes over the last few weeks. There had been an archaeological dig site in British Columbia that had items and artifacts that had clear links to Jason and Zoe's research. They had their plane tickets and were leaving in two days. Jason was allowed to the site because of his university connections in the field of research, and Zoe was going as his assistant. Chapter 21 Before We Leave Zoe was frustrated and frightened. She could tell that the effect of the devouring was accelerating, but Jason was the only person she could tell. But even he could not perceive the changes himself and only had his trust in her that it was happening. A hurricane had struck the Gulf Coast city of La Pointe, the fourth largest city in Louisiana. It hit hard after it departed and dissipated into the land. No one except for Zoe had any recollection of the city or any of its inhabitants. Zoe recounted to Jason all of the artists and musicians who had come from the city, from the days of blue jazz in the 20s to the modern electro movement of the late 90s. The sewer rights leaders that came from La Ponte were no longer in the history book anymore. The people who had family in the city had simply ceased to remember them anymore. During the hurricane, Zoe has sworn that the Blackstone had become colder than before, although Jason said that he could not sense a difference in its temperature. Later that night, Zoe kept seeing things out of the corner of his eye, mainly people who were strangers or shadows belonging to things and people that were not there. It was towards morning when one of the musicians she liked, an electronic musician by the name of C. Tell, appeared in the reflection of the television screen. He had been born and raised in La Ponte. Zoe concluded that all the people and things she had ever seen were probably some ghostly form of what had been consumed by the storm. She also suspected that the people and creatures she had seen when in the office during the bizarre attack were most likely also similar echoes of people who once were. Zoe wondered how Jason could trust her and what she said 
as nearly everything she claimed to be true must have seemed so strange to him, having next to no proof except for her word. Zoe hoped that it had meant that somewhere inside he still remembered their other past together, and that might be the reason for his affection for her. Zoe could not help but notice that even more than her usual mental illness made her used to this over the years, she could not shake the feeling of being watched, and there always were sounds almost inaudible, accompanied with visual distortions out of the corner of her eye. She suspected that this may have something to do with her frequent contact with the stone and may be considered a side effect, or perhaps some type of communication that she was only vaguely receiving from her, at least what Jason and Zoe had started referring to them as, benefactors. Sometimes she could hear the sounds as ghostly whispers in languages that she was unfamiliar with. Sometimes the sounds were clearly non-human in nature as well, ranging from mathematical insect-like clicks to cosmic swishing and liquid sounds. Some of the things that she would see were people. Sometimes they were in familiar dress, sometimes outlandish costumes that appeared to be out of fiction. Other things that she saw for mere moments were even stranger. She saw creatures that appeared to be made of smoke, some that were reddish and reptilian, The same orb-eyed creatures made several appearances as well. At one point, Zoe saw a being standing at the end of a heavily fogged street that must have been over 20 feet tall and grayish-yellow. The only detail she could make out before she blinked to make it vanish was that its dozen or so eyes across its chest were jet black and crying. When they were outside the week before their trip, She would also catch glimpses of strange architecture that did not belong in any known paradigm. On the way to get coffee, there were distant pillars reaching towards the heavens that quickly dissipated from her vision. When driving to get luggage from a departure store, she saw vehicles sharing the road for a few seconds that had never existed, both creature-drawn and automated. Sometimes out of Jason's bedroom window, she would see the far-off pyramids from her previous visions occasionally with dark flying beasts circling its mysterious apex. One night, Zoe heard an old woman's voice coming from the clock radio on the nightstand who identified herself as Goldie. Goldie said that she had been killed twice. First by the all-devourer that ate her heart and mind, and shortly after by an insane man who used to be her fiancé, who had killed her body. She went on to say that she was worried about the offspring of something called the Ancestor, before the radio went silent once again. Jason wondered if Zoe were having a sixth-sense moment, talking to the dead. But Zoe corrected him by saying that what she was seeing were not the dead, but things that should have existed both past and future, but now were gone. Something Something cannot die if it never was alive to begin with. The night before they left, Zoe felt a tremendous hunger building up within her. She got up from the bed and began to walk to the kitchen for leftover spaghetti, but she glanced out the window and something caught her eye. At first, she thought it was yet another one of the phantasms that had visited her over the last few weeks, but whatever it was this time was not disappearing. 
like the other apparitions. She could see the silhouette of the form in the window as the rain poured down during the late fall storm, and she had to suppress a nervous giggle at the gothic cliché of the beast staring into the bedroom during a dark and stormy night. The illumination from the lightning gave her a dizzying view of the form that was lurking just beyond the glass. It was several things all at once, containing eyes, tentacles, and claws. But mainly, it was an orifice, a mouth. The eyes and tentacles were both inside and outside of the shifting structure of the thing, lining the seemingly endless vista of its gullet, stretching back within it for an infinite length like a never-ending reflection in a hall of mirrors. The being simply had a never-ending mouth. In the brief flash that Zoe had caught, she could see that the tentacles also had eyes and smaller mouths as well. All of the eyes were focused on her. The tongues were lapping and licking the window, and the hiss of the rain was blending in with lower rumbling sounds coming from the monstrous visage. It was what she felt in the room when Jason was almost taken from her, and it was the entity from her visions in the distant past that had been seen in the primordial skies, and now it was looking into her. It was impossible to tell if there was a consciousness behind the bestial cosmic presence before her, The traits that could be ascribed to a fellow sentient being were far beyond understanding of what Zoe saw. Zoe felt a new kind of fear at that point, something that went beyond self-preservation or fear of loss. This went in a different and deeper direction, into a fear that was beyond primal. It went back into her cells, and into the atoms within the cells, and the particles of those atoms, whatever was outside her window. It was something older, than the universe itself, older than any preconceived notion of time that had been created in the thoughts of humanity. And it was hungry. What she was observing was not a literal representation of what this force actually was, but a minuscule reflection of how endless it was. It was an image that her mind had chosen to assign to the devouring thing. She remembered then, The other ancient had called it the All-Devourer, and thought that the name, while not doing it justice, was as close as any that she would come across. What she saw was only the aspect that she could properly view without falling completely into madness. It was as if she were looking into a keyhole of a single home and seeing what lay behind it, and then to try to accurately describe what all of the buildings in the city must look like within. This was the thing that had made all of the ghostly things into nothing more than non-existent echoes that only Zoe could see. This was what had taken Patrick and nearly taken Jason from her, and it was staring back at her. She looked down, and the stone was gripped in her fist. Chapter 12 Journey Zoe had attempted to explain what she saw to Jason on the way to the airport. It mainly came out as, I saw it, Jason. She found it hard to describe any further. Jason, being intelligent and caring deeply for Zoe, responded in the only way to respond. He held her. During the flight, Zoe drifted in and out of sleep, looking at the window at the vast cloudscapes. She continued to see impossible things that faded out of reality within moments. 
In the misty distance, she could see the peaks of great towers and mountains that were no longer there. She saw a migration of winged creatures that appeared to be flowing on invisible rivers of atmospheric currents. She saw gigantic grey living forms that matched the massiveness of the cumulus clouds that their plane flew among. The old devourer had consumed them all, and some of the other echoes she saw had been structures and life in the last moments of their destruction. Zoe was happy when sleep would finally take her away from the disturbances. From one airport to another, Jason and Zoe switched from the large passenger plane to a smaller charter plane, the landscape drifting from the urban Vancouver cityscape to the otherworldly mountains of the Pacific Northwest. They landed in a small airfield in Valmount, where they met with one of the grad students, a blonde woman named Cora, and proceeded by four-wheel drive to the final location, the small excavation of a cavern about a mile northeast of Cliff Mountain, which had become unexpectedly more extensive in the past few months. Through forests and rocks they travelled, until at last they were on foot to hike to the actual site, the various peaks disappearing into the grey cloud bank far above their trail. The northeastern part of the mountain was a barren place, with rocks and very little by the way of vegetation. The wind would vary in its intensity in a rhythm resembling a cold breathing pattern as they navigated the rocky terrain. On the hike, Cora had taken the opportunity to explain that the site had been of minor significance to anyone outside the specialized field of Pacific Northwest anthropology and archaeology. Haida cultural artifacts and some remains of minor totem poles were found in a small crevice just where the forest began to reclaim the landscape from the rocks. The crevice had turned out to connect to an extensive system of caverns that had remained undisturbed up until the last few weeks of summer. Normally, much of the research would have been placed on hold with the approaching winter conditions, but the abnormality of the findings had created the necessity for more thorough attention. During the entire journey, Zoe had felt the urge to grip the stone in her pocket, often needing to touch it with her bare fingers. There was only Cora's professor at the site when the three of them arrived, and a larger fellow by the name of Willie Compston. Although many of the artifacts had already been sent away to be studied, several of the items that had been catalogued still remained at the camp. Despite the situation, Zoe found Jason's enthusiasm and his fascination with even the more trivial items adorable. Cora and Willie then had to remind Jason of his reason for coming. The finds that had been kept on an extremely low profile because the implications were not in the known and recognized artifacts found in the foyer of the cave, but in the connecting cavern that was stumbled upon by accident. A generator was started just outside the mouth of the cavern, and Cora reassured them that they had an abundant amount of fuel. The generator powered a series of light bulbs that had been strung along the ceiling, the line of them stretching further and further back into the cavern, in a manner that brought to mind the image of the old devourer's orifice as it also appeared to her as endless and dark. Jason grasped her hand, and she shuddered. The warmth of his hand instantly providing a much-needed sense of safety, even if it were ever so slightly. Even with the lighting and relatively safe passages, 
Minor spelunking gear was still given to Zoe and Jason as a precaution. Cora led them into the cavern, where the bulbs were flickering ever so slightly, casting their pale yellow pools of light on the rock and dirt of the floor. It became apparent that the primary digging had occurred in this initial tunnel, for there were still some tools set aside, and the excavation had left holes and trenches along the sides. This is where we found the other part of the cave, said Cora, gesturing with her hiking stick to a large break in the wall, where the lights disappeared. One of the other grad students were working in that area when he slipped with one of his tools, making that part of the wall collapse. She swallowed, showing a degree of nervousness, and invited them to look. As Jason and Zoe peered into the vista, the overwhelming feeling of being so small when compared to the vastness of time and the universe penetrated the deeper recesses of both their psyches. Chapter 23 The Vault The cavern was enormous. The lights provided by the generator did not manage to illuminate that entirety of the chamber that stretched in all directions from their entry point, but merely managed to illustrate how vast the further reaches of the chamber actually were. The chamber was spherical in nature, and they had entered in what appeared to be the equator of the sphere. The small disturbances made by the trio's breathing and movement echoed off the distant surfaces on the other side. The surfaces around them were not made of the same stone as the surrounding mountain, but something with a more obvious luster. The opening that they had passed through was the only break in the surface that was visible, and Cora indeed later confirmed that their passage was the only disruption in the material. Jason was the first to speak. Cora, what? He paused as the acoustics amplified and echoed his voice round the chamber. He started again in a more whispered tone. Cora, what is this? How did this get... He had so many questions he could barely speak. Cora shook her head. We don't know a lot, I'm afraid. That's one of the reasons we wanted you to come out, actually. There was a tiredness in her voice that was unmistakable. Zoe and Jason both understood what it must have been like to stumble upon such an enormous thing. There is writing in the chamber that we were hoping you might be able to help with. You want me to translate something? Jason asked. Yes. She stammered. Well, sort of. She drank from her canteen to collect her thoughts and continued. There is too much writing for one person or even a lot of people to translate. Jason looked at Zoe, who had been silent up until now. She was staring into the darkness with her stone in her hand. Cora, how is this not known to the world? Or at least, why is this place not crawling with government people? This is the kind of find that changes everything, and that attracts the attention of people who want to control this information. You know, authorities and such. She turned around to hear her reaction. Cora answered. Professor Compton. She sat down on a boulder. He's going to tell people. But he wanted to make sure that he knew what he was telling. You see, he is very big on making sure the right people find out about this, and in the right way. It's not his ego, you see. It's that he really cares about what happens to it. Zoe nodded. 
He has had a few other experts in before you, Dr. Roach. Just not in your field. Zoe took a deep breath. Cora, I think it might be best if you started with what you do know. And then we can go from there. The three of them, to save fuel, had decided to return to the mouth of the cavern before continuing. Cora began to relate to them the details about what was known, about what she referred to as the vault. As she went on and on into what was known, the number of questions it answered was clearly outweighed by the number it raised. As Zoe and Jason listened, they both became more and more entranced by what the information about the chamber revealed. The dimensions of the vault were staggering in their own right. The sphere itself was roughly the size of two rose balls, one on top of the other, enclosing it. The diameter of the vault was 890 feet. It would have been able to hold almost 169 million gallons of liquid. And she then went on to explain that the actual space within the vault was not carved out of the rock and dirt that made up the mountain and land around them. but was its own independent object that had the sediment at bay. The sphere was made out of a black alloy that as of yet none of the geologists that Professor Compton had been able to identify or date, a fact that made both Zoe and Jason exchange a meaningful glance in reference to the stone. It's almost as if someone dug up the area under the mountains, put this giant ball in it, and then covered it up again, Cora said as Professor Compton approached the mouth of the cave. It was actually exactly that, he said as he sat down, his voice tired, but holding some charisma behind it. We actually had a geologist come in a few days ago, and he confirmed with samples and whatnot that the earth around the vault had been disturbed somehow, somewhere, in the last 6,000 years. That appears to be when it was put there. He smiled, but based on his research... It was constructed elsewhere and placed here, and there is evidence that it has moved around throughout geological time. For example, there is a spot that collapsed in India where it might have been before that date, and then there is another place in the Gulf of Mexico where it may have been, but that is a bit more sketchy. He looked at the expression of awe on Jason's face. Yeah, I know. The fact that this thing even exists is amazing enough, let alone that it has been moved several times. But how did... Jason started in futility, realizing that the question had no answer amongst them. Compton poured each of them coffee from his thermos and held it up in a toast. Zoe took a long gulp and asked, Why do you call it the vault? Well, said Compton, stretching... That's where you two come in. Cora picked up immediately where Compton left off, continuing without pause. Although you could not see it, in the limited time you were within the interior, nearly the entire internal surface area of the sphere has glyphs, and you are one of the only experts we have ever found that has any knowledge as to what it might say. Jason tried to picture it in his head. You mean that... Every inch of that thing has writing on it? Compton nodded with a slight smirk. Yeah, and it is written very small as well. Cora reached into her coat and pulled out a small digital camera from inside her coat. She brought up a few photos of the glyphs and showed them to Jason and Zoe. 
The writing appeared to be the same language that Zoe had scrawled throughout her room in the mental facility. As you can see, Dr. Roach, your translating all of this would be an insurmountable task. Still staring at the camera, Jason slowly nodded. What we were hoping, really, said Compton, was that you could at least tell us something about the kind of things it's talking about. Check a few areas that we get to on the lower hemisphere, since we lack the equipment to scale much of the upper hemisphere. Although we are able to get to a bit of where the rupture is. After a silence that lasted minutes, Zoe spoke again. Was there anything else you think we should know? She finished her coffee. Cora nodded. There is also a small structure, some kind of sculpture from what we can see, at the bottom of the vault. She found the appropriate picture on her camera and showed it to Jason and Zoe. When the four of them arrived at the location within the vault where the shape was, they saw that the picture had not done it justice. It looked like a piece of modern art, all black, abstract geometry, and smooth surfaces roughly seven feet in height. It was beautiful. Twists and turns mixed in with the other intricate portions of it that were clearly created by skilled craftsmanship. Off to one side, there was the small oblong surface, roughly egg-shaped, about ten inches from end to end. There were several small raises in the smooth surface of the egg-like portion at even intervals, but one seemed to be missing. Zoe recognized the shape immediately. Jason, she said in a whisper. He looked down at the shape missing from the egg-like portion of the shape. Zoe's stone would fit perfectly. And this is where we'll stop for now. Well, listeners, I hope you enjoyed the next piece of a Stone in the Stream puzzle story, and we're at the home stretch, I believe. Not too much more to go in this fantastic story. Folks, thank you for listening. If you're a supporter of the show, it's time to have your name read out and my thank you sent your way. If you want to support me directly, you can do so for as little as one cup of tea a month. Know that you're supporting a show that restores ancient audio, provides a platform for authors and creatives to reach new audiences, and gives a creative space for people to enjoy without those pesky ads. Hop on over to my Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash sfgt, where you can support me directly. First up is my amazing Odenite Tea Titan, the ever-brilliant Majestic Megastar Maya. Thanks to your brilliant help, I'm learning to master my audio one step at a time. Today I'm using the latest RX software to do so and getting myself familiar with the steps involved in mastering audio. Peaks, limiters, equalizers, now I've done them before but this is a whole new beast. A whole new myriad of different tools to perk up the audio. One of my favorites is the D-Reverb tool and I have to thank you for that kind of tool mate. Thank you so much Maya for your brilliance and legendary support. You're a superstar. My white tea warlord, Lezer of Olympus. Good sir, thank you for your brilliant donation. And because of you, I'm able to actually pay for this month's hosting subscription. The best part about that is I don't have to stress on whether or not I should host on one key provider or another. I'm able to host on both SoundCloud and Audioboom, thanks to your killer support. This means I can get the best of both worlds as a result. 
thank you, Leza, for being your amazing usual self. You're awesome, mate. And my second white tea warlord, because yes, I'm lucky enough to have two, Paige the Collector of Ancient Artifacts. Paige, you have bent the reality of this podcast and even this episode. With your amazing support, I'm able to use Rode Connect to perk up my recordings, create a clearer voice, and tweak with new tools. Right now, I'm working on Rode Connect, a plugin for the microphone I just got, and boy, yo, it's a joy to work with. There are some teething problems, but nonetheless, a really good experience. Thanks for allowing me to even have the opportunity to express these fantastic tools. Thank you so much, Paige. You're epic. And also, I'll be jumping on your email this weekend. And my enigmatic, excellent Earl Grey enforcers I'm lucky to have. Just Heather, Juicebox Andy, Peter Raffelli, Dolphin and Cow, Michelangelo Yacone, Divided by Zero, Leah Fassig, and Alia Arcane. Have a wonderful weekend, listeners and supporters, and I'll see you Monday, as always, folks. Till next, we meet.